May it please the court, counsel. My name is Stephen Russett. I represent Marcus Hallmark, the appellant in this case. Mr. Hallmark is appealing his Hennepin County conviction for first-degree premeditated murder. He was convicted of shooting his sister's boyfriend, Thomas Russ, at a park-and-ride uh, parking lot in Minnetonka. The primary issue and the issue I'd like to focus on here this morning is whether or not the district court committed reversible error by allowing the state to introduce a formal police statement that Mr. Hallmark's mother gave to the police several hours after the shooting, during which she claimed to have observed her son crouch over Mr. Russ and shoot him in the forehead. The admission of the statement was error because the statement was clearly inadmissible hearsay. The error was prejudicial and not harmless in this case because it formed the basis for the state's argument to the jury that the shooting in this case was premeditated. The district court admitted the statement under Rule 807 of the Rules of Evidence, the residue exception to the hearsay rule. That exception allows a court to admit statements that, do not, that are not covered by 803 or 804. Assuming the statement exhibits circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness equivalent to those underlying the recognized exceptions, and assuming that the evidence is the most probative on the point for which it is offered, that the proponent of the statement has available to it. This course cases make clear that in determining admissibility under this exception, that it's a totality of the circumstances analysis. Counsel, there is no one circumstance. Can you tell me if there was any um, inconsistencies between that statement, um, this, the statement that she made on the 911 call? Is, is there any inconsistencies in those two? I wouldn't say that there are inconsistencies necessarily, Your Honor, but the statement to the police, uh, to the detectives, was much more detailed and provided much more information than what she provided in the 911 call and to the officers at the scene. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, did she acknowledge, well, she didn't disagree that she made the statement. Didn't she say something like she just doesn't remember? She did not recall some of the specific statements that were attributed to her. She did take issue with the question of whether she ever said she saw uh, her son with a gun. Uh, she seems to suggest that what she said was she saw a black glove. Um, but again, her testimony at that point wasn't real clear, was a little bit vague, but she was clearly recanting the statement that, uh, that the police obtained to the, to the degree that she was disputing what she actually saw and what she told the police in that statement. So again, it's a totality of the circumstances uh, analysis that this court conducts. And the court has made clear in its decisions that the cir relevant circumstances are those surrounding the making of the statement. Now, although that is clearly the focus, the court has also identified circumstances that do not relate to the, those surrounding the, the giving of the statement uh, to determine admissibility. What I'd like to start with is to talk about, in general, the circumstances of this statement that demonstrate that this was not a trustworthy statement. This statement, first of all, was not under oath. It wasn't subject to cross-examination or the penalty of perjury. It was a classic police interrogation statement at the police station. It was not volunteered. It was in response to questions. Uh, Counsel, she, she was asked at the end of that, though, if, if anyone had made her any promises or um, 
made any deals with her, correct? Sure, and, and, and by volunteered, I mean it wasn't a spontaneous statement that she initiated on her own. It was the police that brought her to the police station and questioned her, and she responded to those questions. We're not suggesting the statement was coerced or involuntary in that sense. And did she uh, sign that statement? Uh, not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you. Um, and as I understand it, you're not suggesting that the questions were leading. Um, when I no, read it, it, it appeared that they were pretty open-ended. To be fair, the, I, I, yeah, I don't think the questions were leading in this case. They provided her an opportunity to, to tell uh, uh, what she had observed. Um, but I'm going to mention it now, and I'll come back to it later. We have to remember what occurred before they recorded this statement. There was at least a 45-minute period where the detectives engaged in what they refer to as an informal conversation uh, with Ms. McClemick about the events that transpired that night, which was not part of this formal statement that was introduced. Did she testify at trial what happened during that 45-minute period? She did not. Uh, the officer, the detective, the primary detective on the case testified and acknowledged that they had this conversation and acknowledged that during this conversation they were providing uh, Ms. McClemick with information that they were gathering as the investigation was, was, was being done at the, at the scene of the crime. For example, he acknowledged when asked that it was he that told her that there were two gunshot wounds uh, to the victim. So we know that before she gave her formal statement, she was being given information uh, by the detectives about what they were finding as they were investigating the crime scene. That's a critical piece of information. It's a critical circumstance to me which should override any other indicia of reliability in this case. We don't know, based on the record that we have, exactly what the detectives told her. We know they talked to her. We know they talked to her for an extensive period of time. They've acknowledged they, they were providing information to her. She testified that her statement was influenced in part by what the police were telling her. That, to me, reeks of unreliability and untrustworthiness. And I think we have to remember that the proponent of the statement has the burden of demonstrating trustworthiness, of identifying those circumstances that render the statement particularly trustworthy, equivalent in nature to the trustworthiness uh, that we admit under the other exceptions. To the extent that the record in this case doesn't provide the information that a court needs to make that determination, for example, what exactly did the detectives tell her? What was the nature of the conversation? In addition to telling her that uh, there were two gunshot wounds, did they tell her that one of them was to the forehead, which would seem to me to be a distinct possibility here? If we don't know that, but we do know that there's a 45-minute conversation, and probably longer if you look at the timing uh, uh, that was involved when the officers got, got to the station and when they brought her in. Uh, it seems to me that, that without knowing that information, the district court and this court really is prevented from making a determination with regard to trustworthiness of the, of the statement. In other words, the, the proponent of the evidence has not provided critical information, critical circumstances surrounding the statement that are necessary for a proper uh, determination. The other factors, I think, or the other circumstances that I think are important to put the statement in context is the statement occurred at 3 o'clock, or ended around 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the formal statement, I think, began around 2.40 uh, in the morning, several hours after the shooting. 
This is after uh, Ms. McClenick and her sister had been taken, escorted to the police department. The detective testified that they provided some time to, to have a cigarette, a cup of coffee, relax, or, or decompress before they, they, they provided the statement. Um, Ms. McClenick testified she had not slept for three nights prior to this. Uh, she was at the hospital with her daughter who was, was uh, having a baby. She testified she was taking medication, methadone, which made her particularly sleepy. The detective testified she appeared to be tired, sleepy, confused, and trying to make sense uh, out of the events that uh, she had witnessed. And we have uh, Ms. McClemick herself uh, testifying that she was simply trying to get straight in her head what had happened and that she was trying to make sense out of the, the events she had witnessed and, and the information that she had been given by the police to come up with some explanation for what might have happened uh, at that park and ride. Those circumstances, those are the circumstances. There's nothing about those circumstances I would submit to the court that make this a particularly trustworthy statement or distinguish it from any other hearsay statement that does not fall within any of the recognized exceptions to the hearsay rule. And I don't think that any of the circumstances identified by the district court compel a different conclusion. The district court started its analysis by noting that Ms. McClemick was available and testified at the trial and therefore was available for cross-examination. This court's cases talk about that, recognize that as a, a relevant circumstance. Um, I would suggest that it really isn't. It's not a circumstance that has anything to do or, or with the making of the statement. It certainly is a relevant consideration because if the declarant is not available and subject to cross-examination, you have a confrontation problem. Her availability eliminates that issue. That's fine. That's a prerequisite to admissibility, but I would suggest it has nothing to do with the reliability of the statement in, in and of itself. But isn't it important to get at whether that statement was uh, reliable or not? I mean, it, it really allows the, de the defense to have an opportunity to show what happened in that earlier statement. I mean, it's very helpful that way. Well, it's helpful in that way, but, but that presupposes the statement is properly admitted. The defense doesn't, it shouldn't be in a position where it has true, to show true, what happened. True, but I'm just making the point that besides being there for confrontation purposes, it, it's also helpful to get at um, if there are things that happened that the police did, for example, you're able to tell the jury that. Certainly, but, it, but as a, from the defense standpoint, I would prefer not to have to tell the jury that. Uh, because the statement shouldn't be there. I shouldn't have to explain it away. The question is admissibility, and that bears on the circumstances surrounding the making of the statement, not the fact that I can address the, the issue later. Um, Counsel, let's, let's assume you're right. The statement shouldn't have been admitted. Um, obviously, it was, I think, an Im important piece of evidence, but if the statement hadn't been admitted, it could have been used for impeachment purposes. And couldn't the prosecution essentially have accomplished the same thing by using the statement for impeachment as opposed to having it admitted as substantive evidence? No, Your Honor. Uh, there's, a, there's a distinction between using evidence for impeachment and using it as substantive which evidence. I, which I realize. I, I'm yeah. going to harmless error. Well, 
I think, I think to answer your question, let, let's look at the court's jury instruction to start with. There's a standard instruction that the district court gives and gave in this case about prior inconsistent statements being used by the jury only to test the credibility of the witness's testimony. The judge gave that instruction in this case, but then qualified it by telling the jury, but that doesn't apply to Ms. McClendon's statement to the detectives. You may consider that statement for all purposes. In other words, the district court specifically told the jury in this case that this statement, the statement at issue here, was before them as substantive evidence. It was not there simply for them to consider in determining whether or not to credit the in-court testimony. Yeah, I'm hypothesizing a world, in, uh, a trial, in which the statement does not get admitted um, and instead is used for impeachment and that second, that sentence in the prior and consistent statement instruction is not used. Why isn't it still, why isn't it harmless? Because it would have been so valuable for impeaching the witness. Because, because I think we have to recognize that the instruction, even without that last part, and it's only for impeachment, instructs the jury not to use it for the purpose you're suggesting they could use it for. It's not substantive evidence. You can use, in other words, if, if a witness provides an inconsistent statement and they testify that's inconsistent with their testimony, the jury can look at that statement and say, we don't, we don't believe you. You said something different before. That's a far cry from the jury saying, being able to say, and we're going to credit and assume the truth is what you said before. Okay, but let, let's say the statement's not admitted. She testifies she didn't see the gun. Cross-examination, the prosecutor says, you, you saw the gun, didn't you? No, I didn't. Well, didn't you give a statement to the contrary, and then she pr proceeds to go ahead and impeach? Um, can't the jury then say, yeah, I, I think she saw the gun? The jury can say, we don't believe her testimony, and we're going to disregard her testimony because it's been impeached. I would say no. For, the jury cannot say that because at that point, they are using the prior inconsistent statement, not as an inconsistent statement for impeachment, but as substantive evidence unto itself of the events that transpired. That's not impeachment. That's admitting statements under the exceptions to the hearsay rule as substantive evidence. So it would be so an improper, improper for a jury in the jury room to say, she denied that she saw the gun. I think, I, I don't find that denial credible. I think she did see the gun. I think they can say the first part. But not the second. I don't find the denial credible. We're going to discount her testimony on that point. And, and particularly so because Russell, it's going what? to premeditation. Pardon me? And particularly because this is the piece that goes to premeditation. Exactly. In this particular case. Exactly. And that's why it's not harmless ultimately is because this, that's, this is exactly what the prosecution used the evidence for. Can I, can I come back to what you started with, the, the informal conversation? Uh, and it, so the argument seems to be that there was, that the, we don't know, it's the burden on the state to prove this, but there could have been some suggestion that influenced her statement in some way. And we don't know about that. But there, what do you do, though, with all the specific things that the police couldn't have, couldn't have suggested to her? This whole discussion of all of a sudden Mark just looked at me and gave me this look, and I don't, and I know, uh, I don't know that look. I've never seen this straight smile and the details of him kneeling over. I mean, that's nothing that the police could have suggested to her, correct? I, I think I, I will agree with that. There are some remarks that she made that, that perhaps only she would know. But again, let's keep it in context. She's trying to figure out what happened. What did I just see? What, 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 trying to piece together this tragic event that she just witnessed. And I don't know that we can divorce 
what she actually saw from the information that she's being given. I think she, she's taken it all in the and counsel, trying to make sense out of it. Doesn't the 911 call, though, actually support what Justice Thiessen is, is suggesting? I mean, at the, 9 at the point of the 911 call, she hasn't talked to the police. Um, and she's, she's, you know, clearly upset. Um, but she also says, you know, oh, my blankety-blank, I can't believe my son shot him. Um, that seems pretty powerful to me. It's extremely powerful. Uh, and we're not challenged the admissibility of that statement. That's clearly an excited utterance and is admissible under the rules. Now, that cuts both ways. That statement does corroborate uh, to a certain degree what she told the detective later, at least on the point of seeing her son shoot the individual. It doesn't corroborate anything about what happened between the shots that she claimed to have seen. But the fact that they have that statement, and they also have statements that she made to the initial responders along the same lines that my son just shot this, this individual, um, plus they have uh, the defendant in this case hiding in the marsh uh, after the shooting. They have the, 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 the murder weapon itself in the marsh, and they got his DNA on it. Um, they didn't need this statement what about premeditation in order to establish that he was the shooter what about premeditation they needed it on premeditation and they didn't have any other evidence on the direct evidence on that point and and, and i guess what I'm, this is a double-edged sword because because to find admissibility you have to determine that the statement is trustworthy you look at the circumstances this court has said one of the circumstances you can consider is is there cooperating evidence I would take issue with that, but for your decisions, uh, because I don't think the existence of corroborating evidence is a circumstance around the making of the statement that bears on trustworthiness. But let's accept it and, and go with it. So the presence of corroboration, to the extent that specific statements to the detectives are corroborated by these other statements, by the other evidence, that would support admissibility, the determination of trustworthiness. To the extent that the specific statements made are not corroborated, that would seem to weigh against. To the extent that we have a lot of cooperation, it would weigh against admit, admitting the statements that are cooperated because the rule also has a necessity requirement to it. Not only does the statement have to be reliable and trustworthy, the proponent must need the evidence. It must be the most probative evidence that it has on the point for which the evidence is being admitted. If we have tons of cooperating evidence on the question of who did the shooting, why does the statement to the detectives have to come in? We've got two other statements where she says it was my son that did the shooting. We, we have all the evidence I, I laid out earlier to support that point. That now weighs against admitting this statement because the state doesn't need it. And this rule, and I've cited some federal cases that, that talk about this, that the rule really is, is based upon a, a necessity for the evidence it's meant to be applied in very rare situations. It's not to be a, quote, catch-all to admit statements that don't fit the other exceptions. Uh, it's a residual exception. It's the, meant to apply it in those rare cases where the other exceptions don't address the issue. But boy, we can point to a conglomeration of circumstances that suggest that this is particularly reliable and it would fulfill the purposes of the overall rules to allow the jury to hear it. The circumstances in this case don't don't get you there, uh, at least that's our, that's our position. Um, some of the other things the, the district court talked about, I'd I just like to touch upon. Uh, the court mentioned that it was close in time. 
to the shooting and that that was a circumstance that supported admission. <clears throat> uh, we have an exception uh, that is based upon temporal uh, relationship between a statement and an event. It's called the excited utterance exception. Uh, the statement here does not fall within that exception, and I think to say that it, we have an exception that covers the situation, but it's not admissible, and then to say, well, but it's admissible because it doesn't fit that exception is, is, is a little disingenuous. Uh, the excited utterance exception exists because it recognizes that, that when you make a statement in, in response to an excitable event while you're under the aura of excitement, you don't have the time to reflect. You don't have the time to fabricate. That's why it's reliable. That's why it's trustworthy. To then turn around and say, well, the statement occurred three, four hours later after she calmed down, after the declarant had an opportunity to reflect and think about things, and therefore that supports the trustworthiness, would seem to eviscerate the excited utterance exception. So what, what uh, so does our case law get at this? I mean, it seems like you're making this argument if there's another exception that goes to one of the things that could make it trustworthy, we shouldn't consider that in the totality of the circumstances. I don't think your case law says that. I, I think, if anything, your case law would suggest the opposite. That, but, but, but that's again, what you're suggesting right now. Hmm? That's what you're suggesting right now? I'm suggesting, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily that you don't consider it. I, it's really a question of what weight should we be attaching to it. And we have to go back to the rule. The rule says a statement not covered by 803004. Well, this, isn't this, this is covered. I mean, this idea that the statement uh, was given in close proximity is covered by the excited utterance exception, and it's not admissible under that exception. Um, and the rationale for not admitting it, it, it seems to me you'd have to turn that rationale on its head to now say that, well, the fact that some time passed and it was a few hours later after she had calmed down supports admissibility, just, it, it just is inconsistent with that rationale. And, and, and does not, in my, my opinion, support the, the decision to admit it. It's not a circumstance that supports it. Uh, likewise, the judge found that the statement in this case uh, was against the declarant's interest because it implicated her son. We have an exception uh, called the uh, statement against interest exception. And I don't think there's any question that the statement in this case doesn't fall within that exception. There are two, there are two requirements that have to be met. Witness has to be unavailable. Ms. McClendon was available uh, and testified. Uh, and in addition, the statement has to be against the clerics, uh, uh, financial or, or, or legal interests. And but, but aren't we saying with that factor in the 807 context that it does suggest it's more trustworthy or reliable if not necessarily the penal interest, but that a mom sending her son possibly to jail for life, that's really not in her interest. And so it would suggest to us that, well, maybe if she's making that kind of a statement, it's more believable than had that not been the, fact, the case. You know, I, I would take issue with that because if you look at the statement against interest exception, her statement implicating her son would not be admissible. It would not be deemed sufficiently reliable for admissibility. To say that it's admissible under the residue exception that, that that indicates reliability seems to me to be contrary to the whole rationale that we apply in the context of the other, other exception. If we accept your, con your conception that the catch-all exception is to do things that aren't covered by anything else, instead of a catch-all exception saying, we can't think of every circumstance where things are trustworthy and so we're going to have this other thing that we can look at to allow trustworthy things to come we're in. We're going to look at it so long as it demonstrates equivalent 
trustworthiness that, that underlies the other roles. So uh, my, 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 my point simply is to say that it's reliable because it implicates a third party. Well, that would disqualify it under the other one. So I, 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 again, I don't know that, that that factor in and of itself or even in combination with the other things we're talking about gets you to the point where this is a rare case where we should be admitting, admitting this statement. The other thing, to your point about why would a mother do this, um, I've been around a long time. Unfortunately, mothers um, are not always like we like to picture them. And I think you'll find plenty of cases where mothers have implicated their children uh, in their own criminal conduct. And also to that point, we don't know anything about Ms. McClevick. The state did not present any evidence about what kind of a mother she was, what her relationship was with regard to the defendant. What kind of a relationship did she have with regard to the victim? What is her character and reputation for honesty and truthfulness? There is no evidence in the record on any of that. And again, the presumption here is the statement's not admissible. It's hearsay. The proponent must demonstrate reliability. And when the record is, is silent on these issues, they cannot be said to have met, have met their burden. I see that my time's just about up. So unless there's another question, I'll, I'll pass. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Burdorf. Uh, may it please the court, counsel. My name is Jean Burdorf. I'm an assistant Hennepin County attorney, and I represent the state of Minnesota. Um, yesterday, I looked up what exactly is required for a district court to abuse its discretion. I sent you a letter uh, citing the Pearson case. That's why I sent it. Um, an abuse of discretion occurs when a district court acts arbitrarily, capriciously. Um, they base their legal ruling on an in erroneous view of the law, or they rely on clearly erroneous findings of fact. None of those things happened with the district court in this case when it was ruling on the admissibility in McClimmock's police statement made March 4th of 2017. So it's our position there was no abuse of discretion. We've outlined it um, in detail in our brief. I want to hit a couple high points um, and talk about what cases support the things I'm going to say. Um, the district court did consider the fact that Ann McClimmock testified was available for cross-examination and admitted at least acknowledge that she made the statements even if she could not recollect doing that. The cases that support consideration of that factor are Orlip, uh, Griffin, and Holt, all cited in my brief. Um, the statement was not spontaneous, but it is undisputed that it was voluntary. Uh, Ms. McClimmock agreed that it was voluntary during the police statement. You can listen to it. It's Exhibit 116 and decide for yourself if you think that that was a coercive statement. It was not. Um, it was based on first-hand knowledge. She was an eyewitness to a murder committed by her son. Um, that is Griffin. It's consistent with her 911 call. She also made, in her 911 call, she didn't just say her son was the shooter. She said she saw him pull out a gun and shoot Tom Russ. So we have evidence of her, of her gun. She saw the gun even in the 911 statement. She also made two statements to scene officers um, saying her son just shot someone at the park and ride. So her police statement March 4th was consistent with all of those statements. That indicates trustworthiness and reliability. The case that supports that is Robinson. Um, she had no reason to falsely implicate her son. This goes to Justice Thiessen's question. I think it's fair for a district court to assume that a mother, even in the ab absence of reputation 
um, for truthfulness evidence, which um, Mr. Russett talked about. I think it's fair for a district court to assume that a mother, um, and you can tell she cares about her son if you listen to exhibit 116. She's obviously very, very upset by what she witnessed and what happened. She's very troubled um, by the fact that you know, her son did this sort of inexplicable thing. I think it's fair for a district court to assume under those circumstances presented with that evidence that she really didn't have any motive to lie to the police and falsely implicate her son in a first-degree murder. Um, Mr. Russer talked a little bit about a statement against penal interest. Um, that is a factor that's cited in your case in Ortlip. It is not the only factor. In Griffin, this the court sort of expanded beyond the statement against penal interest, the, what, what's required under 804B, and says really what we want to look at for trustworthiness is whether someone had a motive to lie, sort of broaden that, that category. We would uh, argue that Ms. McClimmick had absolutely no reason to lie in this case, which lends, its, uh, lends credibility to her police statement. Um, when it, she did recant part of her police statement, March 4th, 2017. She did that at trial. The part of her statement she recanted is the part was that was the direct testimony or uh, evidence of premeditation, that she saw her son um, after the first shot actually stand over Mr. Russ, crouch down, put the gun to his forehead, and fire the second shot. That it was an important piece of evidence. That is the piece that she recanted. Um, one of the things district courts look at for trustworthiness is whether or not that recantation actually seems true. Um, in Robinson, this, that's the same fact pattern. It was a woman who went to um, a hospital and she reported that her boyfriend had assaulted her. She had a broken um, eye bone. She made that report to two nurses. The statements of those nurses came into evidence under the residual exception in Robinson. Um, and the same exact argument that's being made here was made in Robinson. She recanted that at trial. Obviously, that makes the, the prior statements to the hospital staff unreliable. What this court had to say about that is that the recantation itself was unreliable uh, because the facts of the initial statements were consistent with the rest of the evidence. The facts of the recantation were inconsistent with the other evidence. And that's exactly what is true in this particular case. Ann McClimmick gave the police some information during her police statement that she could not have known if she did not witness the murder. The gun was black and the location of the second shot, which was right to Mr. Russ's forehead. So well, in this- What do you make of the defense's argument or the appellant's argument that the police could have suggested that to her and how should we consider that within regard to the kind of burden of proof of admissibility? I'm sorry, I'm struggling a little bit with the microphone. I apologize. I'm really glad you asked that question. That 45 minutes of conversation was tape recorded. It was provided to defense counsel and the state had it. Everybody in that courtroom knew what happened during that 45 minute uh, conversation. Nothing that happened in that 45 minute pre-interview conversation was used by the defense at trial to suggest anything nefarious. It's true, it's not part of the record. It wasn't played at trial, so you don't have it in front of you. Um, but I think you should safely assume that had there been um, improper suggestion from the police about what Ann McClimmick should say to them about what her son did during that 45 minute pre-interview, someone, the defense most likely, or the district court would have noted that in the record. That didn't happen. I think it's inappropriate to argue 
something nefarious happened from silence. This may show my lack of experience, but is there anything in the record that would allow us to know that there was, that it was tape recorded? Yes, um, if you look at, I actually looked this up. If you look at the transcript pages, uh, 1,169 and 1,170, you will see that that is where this conversation occurs. And what Detective Wedmark actually says is yes, that 45 minutes was recorded. And yes, she gave me the exact same story. What, so there's two important things that was recorded. And what Ann McClimmick told Detective Wenmark during those 45 minutes was, according to Detective Wenmark, which is the only evidence of the record on this, consistent with what she said to him in the formal interview that was admitted at trial. Um, and finally, the last factor is the corroboration of other evidence. And that, that I think, really isn't in dispute. Uh, Mr. Russert makes some argument that that maybe isn't an appropriate factor. This court's case law is to the contrary, and I'd ask you to, excuse me, <coughs> simply follow your existing case law. Um, a couple other things. So the, I mean, the argument that we have here really is just there are all of these factors that the district court relied on and that are supported by your case law that demonstrate circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness, there are other factors that might not. That's exactly what the abuse of discretion standard is for. A district court judge is oftentimes presented with a myriad of facts. They have to weigh those facts. They have to assign weight and decide what the ultimate conclusion is. The district court in this case weighed all of those facts looked at each fact, decided what the district court felt made this statement particularly reliable. That's what the discretion is for, and in the absence of something that is arbitrary, something that is capricious, an erroneous view of the law, or a clearly erroneous factual finding, the district court's conclusion is almost like a show your work situation. If they apply the right law, and the district court here did, applied Ortlip, Griffin, and Robinson, and they use appropriate facts apply it to the law. What do, the we do ruling, with the, what do we do with the fact that they didn't walk through all of the, that the district court didn't walk through all of the factors? I mean, because they relied on a couple, but they didn't walk through the actual three factors in the rule, right? In rule 807. She did not. She, she did walk through the circumstantial trustworthiness factors. And so that's really where my comments were going with regard to the trustworthiness. She did not make specific findings on whether it's, the statement was material, the most probative evidence on the material fact, and it was in the interest of justice. Can we look at that? You can. Okay. You can, and, and as I've argued in my brief, I think this statement meets those. It's clearly material, it went to premeditation. It was the best direct evidence of premeditation in the case, so it certainly meets the second prompt. And obviously it goes to the truth finding function that is the really the essence of a criminal trial. So I think those factors are readily met in this case. Okay, and just turning to the adjudication of guilty, everybody agrees that that should be, should be remanded? Yes. Okay. And can I ask you about one of the pro se arguments? Absolutely. Uh, the Rule 611.02 argument. So that's the... That State versus Young? Right. Yep. So is the, what's, the, what's the test? What's the test there that as long as there's enough evidence of premeditation of the, or of the higher crime, then we don't worry about that, that rule? Um, I think what Young says is, is that statute shouldn't be used essentially as a subterfuge for an insufficiency claim. Uh, the statute really sort of speaks to... So if there's sufficient evidence, then the rule doesn't apply? That's correct. 
Um, so um, I would like to touch briefly, I know Mr. Russert didn't talk about this, but I would like to talk about the second evidentiary issue and make a request of the court if you'll entertain it. Um, the second evidentiary issue is whether or not the district court abused its discretion in admitting evidence that linked Mr. Hallmark to the murder weapon. Um, the district court in this case analyzed that at least initially under Spriegel um, and made a ruling that that evidence had to be sanitized so there was going to be no reference to the burglary. And really what came in at trial was essentially evidence that indicated Mr. Hallmark within days of the murder had access to the murder weapon. Um, I think Spriegel is probably not the appropriate analytic framework for that kind of evidence. It really isn't a prior, you know, having the murder weapon on a prior occasion really isn't a bad act as contemplated by Minnesota Rule of Evidence 404B. I argued this in my brief that it really fits better under the analytic rubric of State versus Wolford. Um, and as a district court practitioner and also an appellate lawyer, one of the things we struggle with is, within district court at least, is the idea that anytime something happens on a day different than the crime, everyone automatically defaults to Spriegel and Rule 404B, which has procedural requirements and an analytic framework that doesn't really lend itself to this evidence. And so my request of the court is that you um, actually rule under State versus Wolford. Um, obviously, we've also made other arguments. There's multiple theories about how that evidence was properly admitted, but I'd ask you to consider ruling and giving us some clarifying law about the scope of Wolford. I think this is traditional Wolford evidence. It's, in fact, exactly the kind of evidence that the Wolford court approved. Um, and so I would ask, make that small request of the court. Also, if you're not inclined to do that, um, we've made an argument under Spriegel and also um, under an opening the door theory. And obviously those are ways that you can also affirm the district court's ruling on that point. Um, unless you have other questions that I would be happy to entertain, uh, we would ask that this court affirm Mr. Hallmark's first degree murder conviction and his sentence. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Oh, hold on. You, you don't want us to affirm his sentence. You want us to, well, the, the adjudication. His like, sentence, sentence like, yeah. his life without release yes, okay. sentence. I agree on the second point. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Russett, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. With regard to the 45-minute uh, informal conversation, as it was referred to by Detective Winmark, he did testify it was recorded. I will take counsel at her word that the recording was given to defense counsel, although I have to suggest that, that if you read the transcript, it appears that defense counsel was caught somewhat by surprise uh, when the detective testified that that 45 informal conversation was recorded. Assuming it was, and the record would seem to suggest it was, the problem here is that there is nothing to indicate that that recording was provided to the district court or considered by the district court in determining the admissibility and reliability of the statement. So not only is it not part of the record, so you don't have the benefit of knowing what's in there. The district court, from what I can tell, did not have the benefit of knowing what was in there, which goes back to the point. We can assume all we want about whether that was consistent with, in general, with what she said in her formal statement or not. But admissibility determinations in this context shouldn't be based on assumptions. They should be based upon proof. 
proof of circumstances that support a determination of trustworthiness. Let me suggest to you several reasons why the court abused its discretion in this case. First of all, if you look at the factors that the court considered, it limited itself to the Ortlip factors. It mirrored the Ortlip analysis, one, two, three, four, five. This court has repeatedly stated and advised courts, district courts, to stop limiting themselves to the Ortlip factors, but to consider all the relevant circumstances. So the district court in this case, to the extent can, it can limited- Can we go beyond that though? Pardon can, me? Can we look at other factors that are in the record to analyze it even though the can, district- Can this court independently yeah. look at it? Yes. I think your case law, particularly the Robinson case, where the court determined that the district court misapplied the circumstantial test, uh, and then you independently analyzed the, the, the factors to determine whether it was properly admissible would support that. Um, but again, I think your ability to do so is hampered. And to the extent that the record doesn't provide you the information you need in order to find a particular circumstance supports admission, you have to hold that circumstance against the state uh, and find that it does not support admissibility. The other way in which the district court abused its discretion in this case really is, is, is the next step, which is that it did not consider circumstances demonstrating untrustworthiness. In other words, it limited itself to the Ortlip factors to say it's trustworthy. It failed to consider the circumstances that I identified earlier with regard to the timing of the statement, uh, the, the, the existence of a, a prior informal conversation, et cetera, et cetera, in, in making its decision. So if you're looking for a, 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 a stepping stone to, to find an abuse of discretion, I think that's the starting point. The court's analysis here is flawed. That then frees you up to independently determine whether or not the record provides sufficient information to, to justify the admission of the statement under the catch-all. Uh, motive to lie. Um, I, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't wanna go too far into this, but let's remember, um, Ms. McClemick, by her own testimony, is the one that invited the victim to go with them to the park and ride. She, by her own admission, was present when the shooting occurred. Now, does that give her a motive to lie? I don't know. But it would suggest that she has a motive to make sure the police understand she had nothing to do with this. Uh, it was my son. I was in the car. So if we're, if we're gonna get into this, I, 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 would, I would suggest that there is motive here. You can find a motive, unless we're gonna proceed on the assumption that no mother would do this. And again, I, there's nothing in the record that tells us that this particular individual wouldn't do it. And to say that she has no motive to distance herself from involvement in this offense, I think it, it is wrong. I think she has a very strong motive. And that's why the statement is not admissible under the statement against interest. It absolves herself of any responsibility for what happened there and shifts it to her son. That type of statement is not reliable for admissibility under the statement against, against your own interest because it's not against your interest. And to say that that makes it reliable for admission under, under the, the residue exception to me seems to eviscerate the rules. We're basically going to get to the position where all the exceptions don't matter we can just have one rule, the residue exception. If you think it's trustworthy, admit it. But when you're applying the residue exception as it currently exists, you have to do so, I would suggest, in, in light and in the context of the exceptions that we have recognized. Uh, and we can't go from, well, it's not admissible under the exceptions to it comes in under the residue exception. But based solely on, on the factors that are considered by the, by the other exceptions. 
Uh, the backpack evidence, I, I didn't talk about it. I, I've discussed it in my brief. Counsel in their brief and, and here are suggesting to the court a number of alternative explanations for admissibility of this evidence. We have to go, I think you have to go back to what the district court ruled. We're talking about abuse of discretion and discretionary. The district court in this case originally determined that this evidence of the backpack was not admissible under Rule 403, relevance versus prejudice, unfair prejudice and, and confusion. That was the basis of the ruling. So whether you can qualify this as Spriggle evidence, whether you can qualify it as Wolford evidence or whatever, really misses the point. The district court said it's not admissible. 403, whatever probative value it might have is outweighed by its potential. And then the court qualified that with unless you attack the DNA expert that the state presents. If you attack, then I'm gonna let the evidence in because you don't have a right to suggest to this jury that that's not your DNA on the gun. And if you do, the state gets to present this evidence that the gun owner's ID was found in a backpack the day after the murder with your fingerprint on it. The opening the door doctrine is an equitable doctrine, as I, as I state in my brief, that allows a party to introduce otherwise inadmissible evidence to counter a false or misrepresentation of the facts that the other party creates. The defense in this case did nothing inappropriate by cross-examining the DNA expert about the scope and meaning of his testimony and challenging his conclusion that it was the defendant's DNA on the evidence. We have every right to do that and to say that if you do, you now open the, the, the door to evidence that has nothing to do with the DNA but, and is otherwise inadmissible, I, I think was just clearly an abuse of discretion and an erroneous decision. Do you, do you agree with opposing counsel this isn't really a Spriegel issue? I think to the degree that it implicates a defendant in other criminal activity, it is a Spriegel yeah, but issue. Did the evidence that it was criminal activity come in? I thought the district court kept it out. The, impl the implication that the state wants the jury to draw from this is that the defendant was in possession of stolen property. I, to, be, to be fair, property that was reported missing by the owner. That suggests, their whole point is he possessed this gun, this gun was reported missing by the owner. I don't think it takes a genius for, for a jury to be a genius to say, oh, the gun was stolen and the defendant is in possession and probably stole it. Wasn't the district court though saying, coming back to your previous argument, that in the context of the case, the probative value was outweighed by its prejudice. But if the defense is going to make an argument, which they did, that he didn't have the gun in the close proximity of time, then the probative value of the backpack evidence actually goes up and outweighs the prejudicial impact. Well, I, I, would, I would say it doesn't because it goes up only if you assume that the evidence connects the defendant to the gun. It's the argument, but, but, that's a, but, but, but as the court, the district court itself recognized early on, is there's nothing connecting the gun to the backpack. So, the same, so, so we're introducing evidence that you find a backpack, it, it's a child's backpack, uh, and in that backpack you find an ID with your fingerprint on it that, that belongs to the gun owner. There's no evidence the gun was ever in the backpack. All this evidence shows is at some point in the past, we don't know when, we don't know where, the defendant touched the ID. Right, but which is some evidence, I mean, that moves you closer 
it to that conclusion, which is really what the It moves you closer, and I would, I would ask, hits. moves you closer to what? That he stole the gun during the burglary? Well, that, okay. well, well but, that's, but that's my point, and that's why I, I would say Spriggle is implicated. Uh, in, in, in the issue, because that's where they're moving, and, and they, they can try to sanitize it. If you look at what came in, I, like I said, I don't think it, it takes a genius to make, uh, put, you know, add two and two and get four. The jury probably looked at this and said, okay, guns reported missing, Avi was stolen, they find his well, I, ID. I think the point that moves you closer to the conclusion, it's evidence that, uh, of the conclusion that he had the gun in close proximity at the time of the murder. If there was something connecting him directly to the gun, or the gun to the backpack, then I would agree. What it shows, wasn't, and all it shows in my mind, a, is that he at some point touched the ID. A, excuse me, sorry. Wasn't there a Ruger gun lock in the backpack? There was, but interestingly, there's no evidence that the gun lock was stolen with the gun. Or I, we, we may know that from the record that we have. The jury didn't, there was no evidence presented to the jury connecting the gun lock to the burglary or to the theft of the gun or the ID or anything else. Um, I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.